Because we have such an easy and simple Scripture this morning, um, I thought it would help to begin um, with uh, one of my favorite speakers. His name is Nate Bargatze. Uh, he's a comedian that I've come to know in the relatively recent past. Nate does a lot of storytelling, and he has got a Netflix special, actually, from which I, I've stolen this clip. He's been married for 20 years, and he talks a lot about his marriage, and I really enjoyed this particular conversation. We've Marriage fights are great because they're all very dumb. I would say 90% of them are dumb. 10% the cops show up. But we got in a fight uh, once over chocolate milk. We didn't talk for 24 hours. What happened is I brought chocolate milk home, and she was like, why did you bring it home? And I was like, you're supposed to drink it after you work out. And she was like, that's not true. And I was like, well, there's a commercial on TV that probably looked into it more than you did. So I decided to listen to them. And she said, that's just the milk people pushing chocolate milk. And I was like, you don't even know what that statement means. You don't know if there's milk people. And I think chocolate milk's doing fine. I don't think they're sitting on barrels of it. And they're like, we gotta make up a lie. We gotta get rid of this chocolate milk. She went to college, all right, and I did not. But she did not study chocolate milk, when is it good and not good for you. <laughs> to be fair to her, though, I do not work out. So, <laughs> you know, but I was probably going to start, and I needed to get all this stuff there. <laughs> so good. Okay. Uh, I love Nate. Um, I, I love that video for a lot of reasons, um, um, but partly because it does a great job of illustrating how our relationships, our marriage, and our, our singleness touch all kinds of different aspects of our regular lives, right? It's not just about romance. It's about what groceries we buy in the store and whether we work out or not. I mean, it, they are really pervasive components of our identity. And because they're so pervasive, I think sometimes our identity as single people or married people can become um, almost fundamental for who we are. And, and I want to suggest that part of Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 7 is that uh, as important as those aspects of our identity are, they are not supposed to be um, the foundation of our personhood. Um, that Paul wants us to understand we are not defined by our uh, sexual identity, especially by our marriage status, married or single, um, but our identity and our marriage status are defined by our life in Christ. And that um, all of the components of those most important relationships in our lives are intended to be connected somehow to the most important relationship of our life. And so Paul articulates this by saying repeatedly throughout our passage, remain as you are for the time is short. Again and again, he comes coming back to this idea that we're running out of time, right? And what he means um, by the appointed time is near or the impending crisis or the present crisis is he means Jesus is coming back, right? Jesus is coming back soon. And in light of the fact that Jesus will return soon, in light of the fact that our earthly life is the smallest possible portion of our eternal life, we should live with our eternal life as our priority and our earthly life as sort of a secondary concern. 
not unimportant, just secondary to that eternal perspective. And so, Paul says, in general, um, don't think that your earthly identities, whatever they might be, are essential to your spiritual identity. So, he says, for example, if you are currently circumcised, if you're a Jew, stay a Jew. Don't become a Greek. If you're not circumcised, if you're a Greek person, or uh, by Greek he means really everyone outside the Jewish nation, um, then stay non-Jewish. You don't have to convert to Judaism. You don't have to become circumcised. Stay as you are. He has a, a slightly more nuanced conversation about slavery because if you're a slave, you don't get to choose if you're a slave or not. Uh, but he says in a nutshell that um, if you're a slave, it's okay. You don't have to become free in order to be free in Christ. And if you are free, you really should stay free. Don't become a slave if you can avoid it because God's got a different design for you. Stay as you are. He even gets into this um, weird series of conversations where he says, you know, because of the impending return of Christ, if you're mourning, act like you're not mourning. And if you own possessions, act like you don't own possessions. He, he goes through all of these components of our identity, and he says, um, none of them, but especially singleness nor marriage, are necessary for the Christian life. None of them are essential for us to live the fullness of life that God has designed for us. For the Christian, the only absolutely essential relationship is that with Christ. And our desire to be in relationship with Christ and to learn to live in God's kingdom is intended to be our overriding focus in our lives. And so, every other component of who we are is subordinated to that central goal. There's an old, a semi-old Tom Cruise movie called Jerry Maguire, and Jerry Maguire is a story of a, um, what do you call it, a, a guy who worked with athletes, a sports agent. And uh, in the course of his, uh, the movie, in the course of his story, Jerry Maguire meets a woman named Dorothy. They get married. They have some marriage conflict. They separate and move apart. And then Jerry has a really big night um, with his work, and he realizes that not being able to share it with Dorothy makes that night less special. And so he seeks out uh, his wife, and he finds her having a party with a whole bunch of women, and he walks in and he says, hello, is my wife here? And you get like the most memorable scene from the whole movie. And he says all these beautiful things. And finally he says, like, it wasn't worth it without you because you complete me. And she says, shut up, you had me at hello, right? It's a, it's a great scene. Uh, and it really, it's a, it's a great movie, and I love the message. Um, but I just want to, even though I love the message so much, I want to challenge it a little bit, right? Because I, I want to suggest that our culture has told us that it is the romantic relationship in your life that will make you complete, you complete me. And I think Paul's message is exactly the opposite. It is the spiritual relationship in your life that will complete you. It is not that the romantic relationship in your life might not be wonderful and good and God-given and glorious. And we spent the last two weeks talking about how um, those relationships can point us to God. But, but Paul's point is um, you should be complete in Christ. Without anybody else in your life, you should be complete in Christ. And all of the decisions you make around marriage or singleness should come out of your completeness, out of your relationship with Jesus, upon which your life is built. And that means not that you can't have um, a meaningful decision about marriage or singleness, but that Jesus is in all that decision. 
Um, there's a, there's a I think the 1900s, there was a book called Jane Eyre written by Emily, uh, Charlotte Bronte, and it's the story of a woman, Jane, and part of it is the story of her love for a guy, um, oh, what's his name, Mr. Rochester, I think. And the, the story is really weird and interesting, but ultimately she falls in love with this man and then discovers that he is married, but his wife is severely mentally ill and lives um, sort of in a sequestered place in the house in which he lives. And he says, hey, you know, I, I know I can't legally marry you, but let's just live together as man and wife. Let's just, you know, live together because I love you and you love me. And um, one day maybe we can make it legal. And then we get this incredible insight into her inner dialogue. Um, Jane in her heart has this conversation, and she says, um, when, when he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me. They charged me with crime in resisting him. They spoke almost as loud as feeling, and that clamored wildly, Oh, comply, it said. Think of his misery. Think of his danger. Soothe him. Save him. Love him. Tell him you love him and will be his. Who in the world cares for you or will be injured by what you do? And then... She says, but indomitable was the reply. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Stringent are they, and violet they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? They have a worth, so I have always believed. And if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am quite insane, running insane, with my veins running fire, and my heart beating faster than I can count its throbs. Preconceived opinions, foregone determinations, are all I have at this hour to stand by. There I plant my foot, and I did." Jane says, in a nutshell, um, her emotions, her feelings, this head-over-heels experience of romance leads her to want to say, hey, I'm going to jump into this relationship with you because I'm crazy about you. But beyond and before and underneath all of those feelings are this commitment to Christ. She says, um, I have these guidelines that Christ has given me that I can't discard because it's convenient. And so in this moment, she puts her foot down, and she says, no, Christ first. All others are temporary. And she remains as she is. Uh, this is not to say um, that romance is bad, right? Only that romance outside of God's will for us is bad. Um, we, we also get the exact kind of um, alternative message that Paul has. And when he says, remain as you are, he talks to couples about divorce. And he says, in a nutshell, if you can possibly do it, don't change, right? Don't change for convenience. Uh, there's a story about a court that was listening to the testimony of a wife who sought a divorce. And the judge looked at the woman and said, tell me explicitly what fault you have found with your husband. And so the wife was explicit and she said, he is a liar and a brute, a thief and a brainless fool. 
The judge said, wow, I think you'll have difficulty proving all those assertions in court. The wife said, prove it. Everybody knows it. The judge says, well, if you knew it, why did you marry him? And she says, well, I didn't know it before I married him. And the husband, who's beside himself, finally interrupts angrily and says, yes, she did. She knew it before we got married. (laughs) Paul says um, that we have this calling um, to keep to our commitments, that there are only a few decisions in life we make that can't be undone, only a few that shape the course of our lives on a daily basis. This is why marriage is an effective metaphor for our covenant with God, um, because His promise to us is irrevocable. There is nothing you can do that will ever cost you His love, nowhere you can run where He will not follow. And so, in the covenant of marriage, we're called into that sort of commitment to give up myself to become ourselves. It's what Christ says to us. And so, Paul says, hey, what a gift, what a privilege to keep that covenant, remain as you are. So, as Paul reflects on this incredible calling to be um, complete in our relationship with Jesus and then to allow that completeness to affect all the other aspects of our lives, he is obviously particularly interested in this decision about marriage or singleness, both of which he highly values in this passage. So, I want to talk just briefly about those two ideas of marriage and singleness and how in those we keep ourselves grounded in our first relationship with Christ. Uh, So, let's talk about marriage briefly first, as Paul does. And Paul um, talks a lot about our obligations to each other, but I think fundamentally um, Paul's understanding of marriage as one of our um, sexually moral options is an understanding of selflessness. Paul says that your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your spouse. And your spouse's body doesn't belong to them, it belongs to you. He says that throughout this covenant, um, the goal of marriage is a goal of selflessness. I think this is wildly countercultural. I think that in our world today, we tell people, hey, find someone who accepts you as you are. Find someone who you don't have to change who you are to be with. And I think historically, Uh, from the time of Scripture to um, most of human history, we've said, no, the purpose of marriage is to change us. The purpose of marriage is to help us become better people. The purpose of marriage is to help us work on our selfishness, to to be refined into the image of Christ. Um, Tim Keller says, the secret of marriage is that we do for our spouse what Christ did for us. We sacrifice for them. Keller says, uh, after all, our culture makes individual freedom, autonomy, and fulfillment the highest values, and thoughtful people know that any love relationship at all means the loss of all three. Um, But Lewis, I think, so beautifully articulates the alternative, the alternative not to marriage, but the alternative to loving. Lewis says, love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. 
It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. Lewis and Keller and Paul want us to understand that the goal of the marriage relationship is to become in the image of Christ, to become selfless. And that's what we're working on every day when we're fighting about chocolate milk. We're working on how do I become more selfless in this relationship. Uh, there is a particular focus that Paul has in this passage around the act of lovemaking in marriage. And he says, um, in response to this ascetic idea that, that physical touch is bad, no, this is a great thing. This is a gift that God has given us. In fact, um, we should do it often. Uh, in fact, you should do it so often that you don't do it based on your need but on your partner's need. Uh, I don't think that we have this ascetic culture much in our world today, but I am concerned that sometimes in the church, and we've said this for a while, that we are almost afraid to talk about sex, and so um, we communicate that sex is maybe not really okay, not really a good thing, because we don't want to talk about it in public. We don't want to talk about it with our church. We don't want to talk about it with our friends. And um, maybe it's just so scary and dangerous that we don't want to go near it. And we have spent the last three weeks talking about sex, so I hope we've put that idea to bed. Pun intended. Yeah, thank you. That's good. Yeah. Uh, but, but fundamentally, Paul wants us to understand that God's gifts are good, right? That marriage is good, and marriage and sex reflect our sp spiritual reunion with God. And so, if a woman and man are in love and desire to get married, do it. If a woman, and married are married, a woman and a man are married already, they should have this incredible union, this physical union, this gift of sex that God has given them. Um, but even in that, there is this crazy idea uh, that lovemaking is about selflessness. It's about saying, hey, it's not about getting my needs met. It's about me meeting yours. It's about saying, hey, I want to become less so you can become more. Uh, if you aren't sure how much Scripture loves to talk about um, this topic, I encourage you to read the Song of Songs. The Song of Solomon is um, a, a book entirely devoted to romantic love and sex. And I'll be completely honest with you, I spent a lot of time reading through the Song of Solomon to find seven verses I was comfortable reading in church, right? <laughs> and it's the Bible, people, okay? Uh, so I want you to recognize that God celebrates this and we celebrate it too. Um, Tim Keller says, um, sex in a marriage is like oil in an engine. Without it, the moving parts in a relationship can burn each other out. Be thoughtful, prayerful, and loving about this aspect of your life together. And in it, as in every aspect of your married life, seek selflessness. So I, I love this idea that um, marriage is one avenue through which we can live out our fundamental relationship with God um, that um, completes us. But beautifully and powerfully, Paul mentions another alternative. And one of my great concerns in the church today is that we have forgotten that singleness is not only uh, a Christian option, but for Paul, the preferred Christian option. Um, Paul's understanding of singleness is that it is actually preferable to marriage. Now, I'm not suggesting uh, that you run out and get divorced because of this sermon. That would be a bad outcome. Um, but, but Paul says, when we are single, we can offer undivided attention to God. Uh, and so, Paul recognizes this as um, kind of radically 
in, in the world of his Jewish culture, which valued marriage and childbearing so much, Paul recognizes this as an incredible way for us to live in the completeness of our relationship with Jesus. Uh, I have a little video from Right Now Media that I want to um, share with you about um, the gift of singleness. I viewed singleness as something that eventually would change. Uh, when you're 20, you're single because you haven't gotten married yet. When you're 30, you're single because you're single, because you're not married. Being single, I'm tempted towards sin in unique ways. Like, I'm tempted to believe there's something wrong with me, so that means I need to fix it, so that means I need to go spend money on this, or I need to go get on this dating site, or I need to go pursue this man, or whatever, um, because of a fear that I should be married by now and I'm not and all that, and all those anxieties. I've most felt my singleness when there was a loss in my family a few years ago. It was the first time I really felt like I wish somebody was here with me to carry this burden. Um, I wish I was partnering with somebody that could help me with this, and it just wasn't there. Now, my singleness, I envision it as the Lord's gift to me. For me, as Christ has transformed my heart and thinking about, well, if I'm called to a life to give things away, then one of the biggest and honestly most intimate things I can do is welcome people into my home. So I bought a house, and then I had friends that needed places to stay who all happened to be missionaries. And so it was like, okay, well, this makes sense. And so I just invited people to come, and they came. And then it, the house kind of grew with a reputation of being an open and welcoming home. I, I don't have a divided attention. I can just invite people in with the hope that I can serve and love them. Monday's last semester, I had a college Bible study, and so... Uh, we would have a meal beforehand and go through Ephesians together. And that was neat to just to bless and to welcome college kids. Hosted missionaries for extended period of time as they've needed places. There seems to always be an excuse to open up your home. Um, and I try and take as many of those as possible. My story is that Lord has just filled my home with singles, with adults, with everybody. I, I live a very happy and full life just as I've grown in this hospitality. I love this idea that um, where our culture tells us that we are completed by humans, Scripture tells us we're completed by Christ. And so, singleness, like marriage, is a calling, right? a calling that God can invite us into. Um, there's a difference between being called to singleness and being single and unhappy about it. Just like there's a difference between being called to marriage or being married and unhappy about it. But it's a decision that we make in the context of our relationship with God to say, hey, I want to have the freedom of an undivided attention. It is still not good for us to be alone. But alone doesn't mean unmarried. Alone simply means alone. Jesus was the most complete person ever. Uh, and Jesus um, was never alone and never married. And the gift of His life is He models for us the privilege of an undivided attention. Uh, and so, I want to encourage you, whether you are single or married, uh, to consider um, your calling to live into that selflessness that God desires for us. I want to encourage you, whether you are single or married, 
to live into that undivided focus upon Christ that God desires for us. And I want you to understand, whether you are single or married, that time is short, that time is short, that everything will change with the return of Jesus, and we don't know whether that will be in the next five minutes or the next five years or the next 50 years, um, but we are to live so that we are ready when He shows up, so that when Jesus returns, we have lived a life of eternal significance, and it will not matter when Jesus comes back whether you were married or not. It will matter um, how you lived out your marriage. It will matter how you lived out your singleness. It will matter whether Christ was the relationship that supplemented your life or Christ was the relationship that completed your life. So be complete in Christ, for the time is short. Thanks be to God. Amen.